welcome to the quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Firstly, an announcement. The quest lectures and meetings are about to start with a unique and exciting programme stretching over eight meetings across the academic year. Prices of the programme have been cut in half since it is now delivered exclusively online. We cover topics such as the evolution of Homo sapiens, the origins and history of human consciousness, the development of the Western mind, is the universe conscious, does the cosmos have a soul, is there a meaning to history, how do technology and economic systems alter and evolve human consciousness, is human nature about to fundamentally change, does Jungian psychology offer liberation as well as insight, the quest for spiritual freedom, multi-dimensional crises and visions for the 21st century and finally the human prospect growth dark age or extinction if you wish to join us see details on my website www.alanmulhern.com or contact alanmulhern at gmail.com now to our topic part three the final part of the series on the european union between a rock and a hard place. In this episode, I mentioned the general problems of the EU, both external and internal. I summarise the argument outlined so far in the previous two podcasts, and then present the monetary policies of the ECB, European Central Bank, since the 2008 crash as a series of errors. These policies are desperate attempts to cover up the depths of the crisis and have led the Eurozone on the path of ruin. Only by understanding these policies as defensive and desperate manoeuvres of dubious legality will one see the seriousness of the situation the EU is facing. And finally, I reflect on the latest stages of capitalism with respect to the balance between free markets and the state. So, let us begin. The EU has a number of serious problems that threaten its integrity and unity. Some of these are shared with the rest of the world, such as the pandemic and the climatic crisis, and are not our concern today. The others are external and internal. These include, firstly, large and continuing inflows of immigration. The borders of Europe are extensive and porous and immigration will increase as multidimensional crises rock the global system. A recent example in 2015 was 1.1 million refugees from Syria who were brought into Germany. The immigration question is one of the Achilles' heels of Europe and is the cause of division between member states, some of whom are supportive, while others strongly oppose it. This fuels the rise of nationalist and populist parties across the European Union. 2. The European Union has an insecure defensive position, especially as Russia re-establishes, by whatever means it can, its influence and control of border states that were once part of the Soviet Union. Ukraine and Belarus are recent examples. 3. The European Union has growing political differences with China on human rights, technology appropriation and democratic freedoms. It is also becoming clear that China has a policy not only for trade and economic growth, but the aspiration to be the dominant world power 
and is determined on aggressive assertion, which in the opinion of many is leading to war. Note the situations with India in the Himalayas, Taiwan and the South China Seas. Neither does China remotely share the values of the EU on human rights. Note the incarceration, re-education and relocation for labour of an estimated 1 million ethnic Muslims in Xinjiang, northwestern China. Also, the pandemic virus has changed matters in China's favour. Its perception, now amounting to disdain, of how the Western powers have mishandled the pandemic crisis, has convinced it that the path is now clear for its bid to be number one. Case and mortality trends in the region have paled in comparison to many other parts of the world. As the United States and Europe continue to grapple with new waves of cases, levels in much of East Asia remain low. Better pandemic management has delivered better economic results. China is the only country to have reported a second quarter 2020 gross domestic product number that was higher than at the end of 2019. The political chaos in the United States, its huge and unpayable debts, its chronic lack of leadership, its growing and violent political and social divisions, which the authorities are unable to handle, and its inability in general to meet the challenges of this century, will lead increasingly to conflict, including military conflict with China. A clash between these superpowers, in the view of many, is present, growing and inevitable, and will likely shape the history of the 21st century as much as the world wars shaped that of the 20th. The EU will find it difficult not to take sides, though most probably it will side with the United States due to their deep links and similarities, as well as Europe's dependence for US military support in times of severe crisis. Nevertheless, it is not plain sailing with the United States either, since Europe is over-reliant on the American military shield. At present, the United States is reducing this shield and compelling the European Union to step up its own defensive arrangements. In the light of an internationally precarious, indeed dangerous, security climate, anything which diminishes the unity of the EU is to be lamented. China and Russia would be most pleased at a breakup of the European Union. In my view, this security question is paramount and is of greater importance than economic and political considerations. Fourthly, the EU has countries of great diversity of language and culture, some of which do not accept its progressivist project, for example, on democracy, equal rights, gender and sexual equality and the like. We remain to see how many of the more recently joined countries to the Union will remain if the flow of funds from the centre to themselves become negative. The European vision commits it to democracy and peace, a social market economy with social protection, environmental sustainability and human rights. It seriously addresses economic inequality across the European regions, engages in a progressive research and innovation agenda and is determined to protect public services. It has a distinct European vision of a modern economy and society not shared by other power blocks in the world. The EU is one of the world's great experiments. Bearing all this in mind, I wish to summarise the argument I gave 
at the start of this mini-series, which focused on monetary policy and debt. The European Union has engaged in an immensely worthwhile project to create a harmonious, prosperous and just and peaceful Europe. However, since the 2007-08 crisis, it has increasingly broken its own laws, for example, Articles 123, 125 and 310. These were designed to protect the Union member states. In particular, it has been unable to stop many countries exceeding the 60% national debt to GDP ratio limit. Consequently, much of the Union is hopelessly over-indebted. It has promoted an unlawful transfer union by which loans and now grants are issued to member states that are given by banks in other parts of the Union, the banks being backed up by the ECB. It is now currently engaged in debt mutualisation, in which common debt is issued by the EU and then distributed to select member states. Thus debts are shared, an immense moral hazard is the result. The expansion of the euro to most member states has created a common currency union, which, while possessing obvious advantages, prevents flexible exchange rates and their protective and compensatory mechanisms, as explained in previous podcasts. Admittedly, 19 countries out of the 27 EU member states are within the eurozone, the currency union. While theoretically it is therefore possible to be in the Union without being part of the Eurozone, in practice it is extremely difficult to leave the Euro once within it. The EU thinks of the Euro as central to the European Union project and does everything it can to maintain it. Thus, Greece's and Italy's debts can soar to approximately 180% and 140% of GDP respectively. That is, before the pandemic crisis which the rest of the Union, a few of whom have kept their debts under control, will be expected to guarantee. Flexible exchange rates could have mitigated this by allowing the depreciation of their currencies and so reducing their real wages in one move, promoting more exports and reducing imports. Yes, they would be poorer, but that is the result of excessive debt, isn't it? And yes, constant depreciations of a currency are not a fundamental answer to a country's problems, and neither are they without dangers and difficulties, what economic policies are. But they give a breathing space and allow adjustments that the currency union does not. The EU authorities are now committed to a programme of escalating debt, which will endanger the euro, oblige the wealthier and less indebted member countries to subsidise the less prudent and fortunate, and therefore provoke the exit of wealthier countries who become deeply disaffected by a European project which has gone sour. These policies of the European Union are its answer to the crises it faces. They all flow out of the policy responses of the post-2008-9 credit collapse which have included quantitative easing, low interest rates and increasing debt. In my view, they were and still are attempts to avoid collapse, especially of its banking system, and then of the finances of its member countries. The exploding sovereign debts are symptoms of the underlying malaise of certain member states and the inability of the Union to address their problems. Finally, 
Ironically, these policies will lead to what the EU leaders have most wanted to avoid, the disintegration of its unity and potential anarchy in Europe. And this did not have to be. Sound monetary policies could have avoided this sorry state of affairs. The rest of the world, especially the UK and the US, will be deeply affected by these coming events, for a banking crisis of the Eurozone will spread instantly to the rest of the world, and a weakened Europe will impact negatively on the security of the West. I now wish to pass to the second part of this episode and consider more closely the recent monetary history of the European Union. I ask you to bear with this argument since it is crucial to understanding the current situation of the Union. The developed economies since the 1980s have become increasingly financialized, with the financial sector playing an ever greater role in the economy. For example, the Eurozone banking sector has assets around 250% of the EU GDP. Newly emerging economies, as well as new powers such as China, have also become increasingly embedded in and dependent upon financial markets, which they see as essential for economic growth. However, the financial system is not self-equilibrating but is at the heart of every major speculative bubble and subsequent collapse of the capitalist system from the 17th century to the present. The financial system should be controlled on a continual basis by government because its tendency is always to expand the upswings into speculative booms, thus making the crash inevitable and more deep. The problem since the 1980s is that governments have become interlocked and interdependent with the financial system, thus not being able to control it. The Eurozone has been no exception to this. This has not always been the case. After the speculative boom of the roaring 1920s ended with a stock market and then banking collapse, the financial system was held under tight control in the United States after 1934 by restrictive government regulation. A similar situation occurred in Britain. It took an enormous crash and depression for this to happen. And in my view, it will require comparable events in our time for there to be a fundamental reappraisal of the financial system and for it to be controlled once again. For rather than allowing controlled bankruptcies to take place, followed by adequate legal restrictions. The policy of the EU has been to provide unlimited support, whatever it takes, to avoid its collapse and thus maintain an ailing financial sector to the detriment of the rest of the economy and further generations who have to suffer these mistaken policies and exorbitant debts. The financial collapse of 2008 originating in the United States, but with the same symptoms emerging in Europe, was the result of an excessive speculative boom in credit, the creation of exotic and dangerous financial products, growth of the shadow banking system, and inflation in housing and stock markets. Like most booms, it overreached itself in speculative mania and collapsed. This was a specific stage in the development of the capitalist system, the liberalisation of markets from the 1980s onwards. 
After the financial paralysis of 2008, the United States allowed hundreds of banks to fail. However, this did not happen in the EU, where only a few banks were allowed to disappear, mostly in Iceland, where the whole sector had collapsed. Instead, over 100 major banks received enormous liquidity and financial support. Thus, an inefficient and unreformed banking system in the EU was to survive, and its apparent recovery was painfully slow. It was also allowed to continue with non-performing loans and assets on the balance sheets, which meant that banks held loans which never would be paid. In addition, many of their supposed assets, like the famous CDOs, had lost considerable value, but were maintained on the books at their original purchase price. Absurdly then, banks could determine the value of their own assets, and thus a fantasy or zombie banking system was created in the Eurozone and is still there to this day. The EU authorities could not bear to contemplate the gales of creative destruction sweeping through their financial system. They decided at all cost to postpone the crisis and thus hope it would go away as soon as economic growth and inflation picked up once again. Monetary policy since that time in the EU has largely revolved around two issues. Firstly, to find a way to bail out, time and again, the zombie banking system and increasingly to bail out the bankrupt states of the Union, despite this being against its own articles and laws. Frequently, these two aims, bank aid and state aid, overlapped. In my view, all of this reflects a non-functional economy and financial system, and governments with misplaced theory and policy, especially in the monetary field. In 2012, in response to the threatened banking collapses across the Union, the ECB invented the Outright Monetary Transactions, OMT, programme, which allowed the central bank to buy nearly unlimited amounts of government debt from stressed euro-area economies. It was designed when Europe's debt crisis threatened to break up the single currency, and the sheer existence of such a powerful measure almost immediately calmed markets. But OMT came with conditions of painful economic reforms and a plan to ensure the debt burden was sustainable. Much of this money was pushed into the failing banks, which then proceeded to lend to weak or even insolvent corporations. Many of these firms did not even use these loans to invest or to employ labour, but instead increased their reserves and in some cases bought up their own shares, driving their share price higher. Firms that were soundly based, on the other hand, were damaged by this misdirection of lending, and this further harmed the EU economy. The OMT programme was presented as the saviour of the Eurozone, but it was the opposite, in my opinion, and was to lead to a line of policy errors that take us up to the present and have damaged the Union, contributing to its stagnation. Subsequently, the ECB, the European Central Bank, reduced interest rates to below zero in 2014, that is, large corporations and institutions 
had to pay banks to take care of their money. It was anticipated this would oblige them to spend their excess savings and reserves. However, this did not occur. In this liquidity trap, investment, output and employment did not respond to lower interest rates. But this damages the economy, since it made it so much easier for financial institutions and the shadow banking system to borrow cheap money and continue their dangerous practices. For example, creating a speculative bubble on the stock exchange, which in most countries became completely disconnected to the real economy, as in the United States. Moreover, by making cheap money available to firms, it encouraged the existence of a zombie economy, since many firms only existed when artificially low interest rates for money existed. Next, the ECB, following the United States, embarked on a quantitative easing programme, QE, in 2015, in which it bought sovereign, that is national, and corporate debt. This did persuade banks to increase lending, but to do so, they lent to higher-risk projects and to less solvent borrowers. In effect, the combination of all these policies, the failure to clean up after the 2008 crash, the negative interest rates, the OMT and the QE, simply increased the weaknesses of the EU banking system. You might say that all these policies are running away from the problem rather than really addressing it. Much of the EU banking sector has really been insolvent since the 2008 crisis, from which it never recovered. The share prices of the European banks have also been dismal in this period. The present economic crisis, the emerging Great Depression, cannot be met in the EU by a healthy banking system. Instead, countries, that is sovereign states, are increasing their debt to meet the dimensions of a crisis more vast than almost anyone envisaged, except that the member countries of the EU are far more indebted now than in the 2008 crisis, and currently these debts are exploding. This implies another banking crisis, as sovereign states of the EU are unable to pay their debts, which are to these very banks. Thus we move to what in my view is the latest monetary policy error of the EU, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme in our own times in 2020 which involves the EU issuing debts on the world market and then using the proceeds to distribute to member states. This implies a mutualisation of debts, that the EU debts are therefore shared by member states. Since it is obvious to everyone that the individual states cannot expand their debts further without a considerable rise in their repayment interest rates, then the EU is doing this on their behalf. To repeat, this is unlawful since it breaks the articles of the EU, but nevertheless, this is what is happening. Once again, the EU authorities are reacting to the extreme crisis they face, the threatened exit of Italy from the Union, and perhaps Spain, unless vast amounts of money are given to them as grants as well as loans, without conditions. It is my view that these monetary policies, subsequent to 2008, right up to the present, are an evasion of the central problems. 
It is because the EU can't contemplate the exit of more member states. Because it has an extremely weak banking system that has been propped up like a sick patient. Because it has member states whose debts are out of control and who do not have the productive resources to engage in further economic sound activity that it pursues such mistaken and dangerous policies. It can't face reality, the gales of creative destruction that can collapse the banking system and sovereign states, reducing the great European project to rubble. Finally, I wish to reflect on the stages of the system. Capitalism has passed through various phases in recent decades. From the 1980s onwards, there was a liberalisation of markets in many parts of the world economy. The dismantling of the state-run systems in China and Russia. The end of the Keynesian post-war period in the West. The denationalizations of many state-run industries. Free market ideologies began to dominate Western thought in particular. This was very apparent in financial markets, which were freed from the restrictions that had originated in the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 in the United States, and which lasted half a century, and contained the banking system in a restrictive and safer structure, which also influenced European banking. However, it seems impossible to retain the hard-won lessons of the past, and America, followed by other Western countries, once the restrictions were lifted, and greatly encouraged by internet technologies from the 1980s onwards, entered once again an immense speculative boom leading to the crash of 2008-9. Alan Greenspan, the head of the Federal Reserve, Central Bank of the United States, for much of the liberalisation period of which he was the chief architect, had to admit in congressional hearings inquiring into the origins of the disaster that he had been wrong in his belief that the financial system was self-equilibrating. During and subsequent to the 2008 crash, Western capitalism entered another stage, reversed its position, and once again became very reliant upon government and central banks. Nevertheless, as we have seen, the United States allowed considerable numbers of banks to go under, while rescuing many of the depositors while Europe failed to allow this process to happen. This was, in my view, because many of Europe's banks were very large indeed, and their demise could crash the economies they were part of. The economy of the United States could weather the collapse of most of its banks, since it was committed to increasing its national debt to fund such a process, and it was such a larger economy. The debts of member states of the EU, however, began to rise alarmingly, and the central authorities saw it as their task to engage in rescue operations comparable to those of the United States, although such operations were against the Articles of the European Union. In the last resort, this means increasing debt to bailout banks, member states and their economies. What distinguishes this latest stage, post-2008, is that the state has committed itself to almost total responsibility for the preservation of the financial system, and increasingly for the economy as a whole, which could be called a form of hyper-Keynesianism. This is a short-term perspective, 
and at the expense of the long-term health of the economy. Thus the state has become committed to ever more debt and increases of the money supply to fund not only the ongoing bailouts, but also the increasing gap between government expenditure and income, the annual government deficits, which year after year add to the total national debt. With the pandemic crisis of 2020, this fatal policy response now means that the state has socialised practically the whole of the financial system, which is completely dependent upon it, and with every shudder of the financial markets and its feeding grounds of the stock exchanges, a clamour arises for state rescue, which the general population have come to expect as normal. Since there is no education in sound economics and finance, the dangers of such policies are scarcely understood. To say nothing of the obscurantist terminologies which disguise what is going on in monetary policy. Few understand even what the terms of monetary policy stand for, never mind their meaning, and still less their consequences. This is because the general population is not alerted to or taught what these policies mean. This immense socialisation of the economy, that is increasing state control, resulting from the impact of the pandemic crisis, stretches then way beyond financial markets, since governments of Western countries are expected to support vast stretches of the non-financial economy with wages, furlough schemes, grants, cheap loans, tax breaks and so on. Thus the capitalist state has converted itself into a socialist enterprise. All well and good, you might say. This is an emergency. It's no one's fault. The virus is upon us. However, the government has no savings to finance this. And this gap between its expenditure and income must be paid for by one means or another, by the real economy in the end. Unlike Joseph as Chancellor in the land of Egypt, in the Bible, you may recall, who saved for seven years in order to face the seven years of famine, Almost all of modern Western countries have saved nothing during the time of boom and so are very poorly equipped to face the lean years ahead. Thus, debts rocket upwards to finance bankrupt countries, financial sectors, corporations and the like. Money creation and debt have become the great illusion that the crash and depression can be avoided, that the government can save the economy. Once again, we shall have to learn that this is ultimately impossible and all we have stored up is unpayable debt, greater malfunctioning of the economy, disconnected and obscene stock market speculative excess, greater inequality of income, an underclass growing to alarming size in many countries, a zombie economy and zombie financial system. Zombie means the walking dead. And the state and central banks have created this very situation as a consequence of their response to the economic and financial crisis of the system. Predictions are dangerous in economics, but it seems fairly safe to suppose that enormously increased national and now EU debts plus increased money supply are on the agenda in the coming period. This is now the essential requirement for all other rescue policies to work. However, the risk then passes up the chain from the indebted to the guarantor. It passes from the banks and the economy to the government of the member states and then 
to the European Union itself. But the system becomes ever more indebted and the dangers of the crash ever greater. The EU engaged in an exaggerated expansion of its membership, embracing practically the whole continent. It now creates vast debts in an attempt to bail out states, banks and even economies. It seems a titanic enterprise. Mm, titanic. The very word strikes an ominous chord in trauma memory. Back in 1912, it was asked how the Titanic, the largest passenger ship of its day, could be sunk by an iceberg. Monetary policy, with its exploding debts and vast money creations, could well be the iceberg that sinks the European Union.